Anybody here ever receive one of those uh, email scams from a prince in Nigeria? Anybody ever see any of those? A lot of y'all probably know what I'm talking about. In case you don't, there's this famous email scam where a Nigerian prince halfway across the world has been left many millions of dollars, of course, but because of socio-political unrest or, or some sort of personal loss in this Nigerian prince's family, in order to keep those millions, he needs to send some of it to, of all people on the whole planet, you. And he's going to ask you to serve as an intermediary. And if you will do that, if you will help this, uh, this poor but not really poor Nigerian prince by keeping it in your bank account, he's going to allow you to keep about 10% commission. Right? Like, great deal. Sounds good. <clears throat> the catch, of course, is that in order to do so, you're going to have to send a small fee of a few thousand dollars, uh, you know, just to, to, to initiate the transaction fees, you know. Some of you all probably received that here um, in these seats and perhaps early on in the, <laughs> the days of the interwebs responded thinking, hey, what a great deal. There are variations on this theme, of course, but they're basically the same kind of thing. Foreign rich person, usually a royal family member or dignitary, is desperate to send millions of dollars uh, in cash or in gold in order to keep it safe. Um, so you, you kind, warm-hearted soul that you are, your loving, loving person that you are, you want to help this Nigerian prince, so you act as an intermediary uh, to, to, to keep it in your possession, in your bank, just, just for a few days, just for a few days. Uh, and for doing that, you receive a little bit of commission. Now, of course, before all this transfer actually happens, the scam depends <laughs> on numerous emails back and forth, especially to establish a relationship of trust between the scammer <laughs> and the scammy. So there's this British comedian who's named James Veach, who decided to go ahead and answer the email scam and to begin some dialogue with one of these scammers. And the following is an actual email conversation between James and an email scammer named Solomon who needed some help uh, with some gold. Let's watch this. I'm James Veach. I get a ton of scam emails, but instead of deleting them, I decided to hit reply. Today... I had a weird conversation with a guy called Solomon Adonka about some gold. Here's what happened. Hello, James Veach. I have an interesting business proposal I want to share with you, Solomon. I was like, Solomon, your email intrigues me. Go on, go on. He said, dear James Veach, we shall be shipping gold to you. You will earn 10% of any gold you distribute. So I knew I was in safe hands. I said, how much is it worth? He said, we will start with a smaller quantity. I was like, ah. And then he said, of 25 kilograms? The worth should be about $2.5 million. I said, look, Solomon, if we're going to do it, let's go big. I can handle it. How much gold do you have? He said, it's not a matter of how much gold I have. What matters is you're capable of living handily. We could start with 50 kilograms as a trial shipment. I said, 50 kilograms? There's no point doing this at all unless we're shipping at least a metric ton. He said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a hedge fund executive bank manager. This isn't the first time I should bullion, my friend. No, no, no. I was like, now look, where are you based? I don't know about you, but I think if we're going by the postal service, it ought to be signed for. That's a lot of gold. He said, it will not be easy to convince my company to do a large quantity shipment. I said, Solomon, I am completely with you on this one. I am putting together a visual for you to take into the board meeting. Hold tight. I said, Solomon, attach this email. You'll find a helpful chart. I've had one of my assistants 
run the numbers. I'm no statistician, but I think there's definitely something, some, there's definitely, there's definitely something going on. I've discovered an undeniable correlation. We need to be shipping as much gold as possible. He said, I will be so much happy if the deal goes well, because I'm going to get a very good commission as well. And I said, that's amazing. What are you going to spend your cut on? And he said, on real estate. What about you? I said, one word, hummus. It's going places. I was at the grocery store the other day, and there are like 30 different varieties. Also, you can cut up carrots. I'm not going to rip them. Have you ever done that? Solomon! He said, I have to go to bed now. Till tomorrow, have sweet drinks. I said, bonsoir, my golden nugget. Bonsoir. I said, Solomon, I'm concerned about security. When we email each other, we need to use a code. And he agreed. And so I said, that's amazing. I said, Solomon, I spent all night coming up with this code. We need to use it in all further correspondence. Lawyer, gummy bear. Bank, cream egg. Legal, fizzy cola bottles, plain peanut M&M's, documents, jelly beans, Western Union, a giant gummy lizard. Please call me Kit Kat and all further correspondence. I didn't receive anyone back from him, so I was like, mm, gone too far. I said, you know, Solomon, is the deal still on? Kit Kat. He did reply, and he said, the business is on, and I'm trying to raise the balance for blah, 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 blah. I said, dude, you have to use the code. What followed is the greatest email I've ever received. The business is on. And I'm trying to raise the balance for the gummy bear so he can submit all the needed fizzy cola bottle jelly beans to the cream egg for the peanut M&M's process to start. Send £1,500 via a giant gummy lizard. Actual email. There are some places in the Bible that can feel a little like you're reading an email from a Nigerian prince about gummy bears and cream eggs and fizzy cola bottles. And Mark 13 is a little bit like that. When it comes to reading in the Bible what we kind of call the end times, uh, which most people mean to refer to the time especially close to the return of Christ, when we read about apocalyptic literature like that, uh, throughout Scripture, it can feel a little like you're reading an email like that, can't it? For example, just one little example, there are many of these we could talk about, and we could put pictures up of, of the way that Christians throughout the centuries have, have depicted these kinds of passages. But in Revelation 13, there are two beasts, one of which, the first of which, is a seven-headed monster with ten horns that rises from the sea, and it looks in the body like a leopard, but it has feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. Sometimes reading Scripture can feel like you're reading in code. Our text for today, Mark 13, reads a little like that last email from Solomon to James. Like the business is on. I'm trying to raise the balance for the gummy bear so he could submit all the needed fizzy cola bottle jelly beans to the cream egg for the peanut M&M's process to start, send 1,500 pounds via a giant gummy lizard. So, here I am, <laughs> a preacher, standing here in front of you on game day, well aware uh, that many may come to a text like this expecting the sermon to function as a magic decoder ring. for any sorts of giant gummy lizards we may come across in the text today. It's a little like the comedian who stands before a crowd, before a stand-up routine, and the crowd's expecting to laugh. 
There's this idea that they're, they're sitting there going, okay, joke boy, make me laugh. Now, some of you today may expect something like that from me for you for the text. Uh, many of you perhaps grew up in settings where that was a thing. Perhaps you expect magic decodering for the Bible in your notes today. And, and, and don't worry, we'll do a little smidge of explanation, but it's going to be a very high-level explanation. We're not going to get into the details. We're not going to get into like timelines and charts, and this is going to happen then because it happened here in the Old Testament, and Jesus is grabbing that to say this about this here that was their immediate context, and that would happen after Jesus left, before the time of the time after the tribulation when he would actually the return. Some of you crazy people actually followed a little of what I meant. <laughs> we could do that, but we would get through six verses. We've got a lot to cover. And another reason why we're not going to get into the detail as much as I sort of insinuated right there, though I didn't give you a whole lot of detail, I just kind of told you what it's like is because to do so often means we make the same mistake the disciples made in the text. To treat the text as if a magic decodering process where I get the knowledge and the critical details out so that I know that I know what's going to happen <laughs> is to miss the point of the text entirely, in fact. And it's to make the same mistake the disciples made. Because frankly, and I hope you'll see this by the end, because we've got a lot to cover in 16 minutes. There is one main point that Jesus is making throughout this text, and it's not about who exactly comes when. There's one main point he makes in the text, and it is not to figure out who exactly the giant gummy lizard was, is, will be, or might be. So let's jump in at the text of Mark 13 in verse 1. And learn together what the main point is. Verse 1. At times we're going to fly through the text. At times we're going to pause a bit. This first few verses is a bit of a flying through. It says this. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple. Remember last week we said that this was sort of Jesus' Elvis leaving the building moment. He would leave the temple never to return. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, we don't know which, Look, teacher, Rabbi, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Hey, Jesus, isn't this place amazing? Which it was. It was huge. It was one-sixth of the size of all of Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him, that one nameless disciple, meh, temple, shmemple. Verse 2, you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. History records that this was actually the case in the fall of the temple. You could hardly tell there was a temple there. It's all coming down anyway, Jesus says, which of course to the disciples feels like, what? <laughs> That's not possible. So, verse 3, they keep asking. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, as we talked about, Last week, that's a, a telling statement. It's a position of authority opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew, Jesus' inner circle of three plus Andrew, asked him privately, Jesus, verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? We want to know. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Press pause. The disciples here sound a lot like we often do. 
we so badly want clarity (laughs) and insight and knowledge. We want to know when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen and how we're going to know that what's happening is the right happening and not the wrong happening. Why? So that we can, quote, prepare. Interesting that apparently Jesus doesn't see knowing enough about the signs as proper preparation. Notice here how Jesus basically doesn't provide the answer they want to hear. He provides the answer he knows they need to hear. You see, they're going to be taking the gospel, continuing the Great Commission, taking the gospel to the nations, to the nations beyond the Jews, which means they're going to undergo persecution and heartache and pain. So he challenges them in this moment. Instead of seeking out answers that you can't know, and he'll tell us later that I don't either, he says, (laughs) stay focused. You have a job to do. Now we're hinting at the main point. Job one is not to know what the signs are. In fact, there are places in the New Testament, in addition to this, where actually actually it's a bit discouraged to do so. In fact, check this out. According to uh, most scholars, verse 5 here, and I don't know if any translations uh, do it this way. Verse 5 should say, but Jesus. Verse 5 is a word that can be and, can also be but. Uh, It's what we call an adversative in this case. It should say, but. So they ask, Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? But Jesus, contrary to what they'd expected as an answer, he began, verse 5, we're going to pick it up here again. He began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Don't get sidetracked. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Upheaval is going to make things seem like, aha, this is it. The moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars. So the temple's coming down. Jesus is going to return and the earth and the heavens are all going to be destroyed and renewed. This is it. Here it is. This is the time. But Jesus says, chill out. Do not be alarmed. This is not the end. Not yet. Look at the end of verse 7. This must take place. This is all part of God's plan. These things are normal, he is saying. But, even with all the phenomena like wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. Then he further explains in verse 8, What must take place, he says this, verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. These are just beginning of the normal stuff that follows the Messiah's coming. Birth pains are a sign of judgment. And the coming of the Messiah was a piece of that judgment. Jesus is saying it's, it's easy to regard natural catastrophes as signs of the temple's destruction or of God's judgment or of the Lord's return. But let's stay focused, people. He's saying this is normal. This is normal. And in verse 9, Jesus introduces the sort of positive trajectory and focus of the believer. So far, he's been saying, don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Don't worry, the end is not yet. Now he's saying, do this. 
And we see a hint of the main theme coming through. It's already been hinted at a couple times in the text, but it's made explicit here in verse 9. He says, but you be on your guard, but be on your guard. And we're going to pick it up here a bit faster. For they will, not they might, but they will. So this is normal Christian experience. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. We said last week, but that's not just a statement about timing, that's a statement about priority. Those who are on their guard doing job one, which is made explicit here in verse 10, are about the mission of the proclamation of the gospel. The mission of the proclamation of the gospel to, quote, all nations beyond the Jews is job one. Keep reading verse 11. And when... Not if, but when. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will, not might, but will, brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will, not might, but will, be hated by all for my name's sake. But here's the good news. (laughs) The one who endures in being on guard for the mission the one who endures in being on guard for the mission, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let me summarize 9 through 13 real quickly by just saying that normal Christian witness, normal Christian witness, which involves proclaiming the gospel, will result in persecution. Jesus knew this from his own experience. He knew this for his disciples. He knew this was going to be the case for us. He knew this was going to be the case at the very, very end, at the time after what he calls later the tribulation. So verse 14 is what begins a little bit of this uh, giant gummy lizard (laughs) section here. Uh, Look at verse 14. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. In other words, when you see someone so desecrating the temple, at least in that immediate context, that he or she lays waste worship of God, which was depicted and and predicted in Daniel 9, 11, and 12, then when that begins to happen, that that desecration of, of the place of God, someone or something eventually, I believe the Antichrist and 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll get there in a bit here, uh, will take the place of God, at least as a fake. When that happens, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, that's a parenthetical statement by Mark there, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is a little bit complicated. Let me talk about it in big picture terms like this. <laughs> Jesus is talking in the immediate context about the destruction of the temple during the disciples' lifetimes. And part of how we know that he is, is his specific instruction to those who are in Judea. Here in verse 14, he says, people in the future and us not in Judea. <laughs> But 
He is using that temple imagery, that, that temple destruction, as a prefiguring, a prototype of the someday in the future abomination of desolation that will occur when the man of lawlessness, as it's called, the Antichrist of Second Thessalonians 2, quote, sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So we begin to see a transition here in the text from the immediate context to the future as well. That's about all we'll spend on talking about the future, except for a couple other little places in passing here. So. so, when the abomination of desolation happens, whether now or later, verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and will never be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being could be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And verse 21, yet another do not be deceived warning. And even then, if someone says to you, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if it were possible, which is the basic meaning there, if it were possible, the elect. So even during that tribulation, keep your focus on job one, which is to be on guard, verse 23. Even then, be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand, he says. You know this is, this is going to be happening. Just like it has happened and is happening and is going to happen. And the time after the tribulation, before the second coming, will also happen. And the reason I keep saying even that time after the tribulation is because that's where Jesus picks up in verse 24. He says this, but in those days after that tribulation, now Jesus is most explicitly talking about the events preceding his second coming. Verse 24, but in those days, even after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heavens and powers in the heavens will be shaken. Even when it seems like it can't get any worse, it will get worse. And then at some point, though no one will know when, as we'll soon learn in 32, Jesus is going to return. And then verse 27 I'm sorry, 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Verses 24 through 7 use apocalyptic language. Um, it's about the only, the only part of Mark 13 that's actually apocalyptic. Um, uses apocalyptic language from the Old Testament to visualize the upheaval of the entire cosmos, not just the earth, but all of the heavens and the earth. The entire cosmos is, is going to be in upheaval, and that's going to accompany the Lord's return. Accompany the Lord's return. Now, jump down to 32. This is stay focused language from here on out. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This is Jesus' most explicit answer to the disciples' question in verse 4. No one knows, not even I. And then he says, yet again, verse 33, the mark of a disciple. 
The mark of a disciple isn't knowing about what and when, but it's about serving Christ faithfully. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, be spiritually vigilant, for you do not know when the time will come. You're vigilant because you don't know. Not vigilant because you know. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And then for two sentences, he gives us this short parable. This this two-sentence example of what being on guard looks like in verses 34 and following. It says, it's like a man going on a journey. And of course, he's talking about himself here. He is the man who's gone on a journey. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. He gives disciples a, a title here. He calls them servants. And they each have work to do. It says, each with his work. And also, more specifically, he commands the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper is the real focus of this little parable here. It's like a man going on a journey where he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands specifically the doorkeeper with a specific task. He's saying that that every follower, every follower of Christ is to approach their service like this doorkeeper whose one job, next three words, is to stay awake. Every follower of Christ is to approach their service like this doorkeeper in verse 34, whose one job it was is to stay awake until the master returns. Wakefulness was readiness. Therefore, verse 35, stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight when the rooster crows or in the morning. He names all the four parts of the day there. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Readiness for the return of Jesus is to not be caught sleeping on the job. In Mark 13, We are implored to look, to watch, to be on guard 11 times throughout the chapter. From beginning all the way to end. Because friends, being ready for Jesus' return means carrying out your mission. Now here's the thing. (laughs) Jesus' command for us to be on guard, to stay awake only makes sense to someone who is fighting a battle. Like straight up, if the words be on guard don't seem to make sense in your life, perhaps it's because you're not a part of the battle that requires wakefulness, readiness, vigilance. A lot of people are asleep on the job, friends. A lot of people have forgotten job one. Who uh, knows what an internet meme is? Internet meme, M-E-M-E. I know some of y'all do. Get your hands up. Okay, there you go. Cool. I need to know that some of y'all know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what an internet meme is, it's uh, a... I'm about to say, help me out. Um... It's something that someone posts somewhere, a picture that 
you know, some comment about something uh, that's going on in the world today or, or some sort of funny uh, picture that has uh, some comment on it. That's a, a meme when it becomes something that's viral and sent all over the place. And Anyway, one of the uh, common Internet memes in the last few years is the one that says you had one job. I know a number of you all have seen this come across your phones and computers. You had one job. Uh, let me give you an example. Here's a favorite of mine. Had one job. Please slow driveway. Someone got distracted here. There's also been a counter meme where it shows someone who had one job but they just absolutely nailed it. This isn't the example of somebody who had one job and was distracted. This isn't please slow drively. This is somebody who had one job and they were on guard. They were on post. They understood their task and they carried it out as if it mattered. (laughs) This is one of my favorites. You had one job. This person nailed it. Isn't that cool looking? I mean, somebody here gets paid minimum wage to do nothing but take cans and put them on the right shelves. And this person was given the task to do something with these cans. I I suspect the manager didn't say, hey, make an amazing Batman figure. Whatever the case, we know this person had one job and they did it as if it matters. This person was on point. They were focused. They were on guard. Friends, you don't need to give you lots of examples. You know that when I say this, this is true. Lots of Christians and therefore groups of Christians and churches are slowing drively. Because they've forgotten job one. What would a church look like? What would your life look like? What would be the fruit of a life where you were on guard, where we were on point and ready and awake and aware of job one, building something akin to amazing Batman displays. (laughs) Instead of worrying about things that are beyond our control or that we aren't called to handle, Or that distract us? Did you know that uh, according to the FBI, every year, many millions of dollars are stolen from American accounts and placed into the accounts of Nigerian princes who are all fakes. And guess what? Nigeria doesn't even have princes. Like even today, Many people are distracted by wars and rumors of wars. Part of why emails from fake Nigerian princes work is because many people are not at their post. How about if we as a people, instead of focusing on everything that is beyond our control or that we aren't called to handle or that we know are distractions for us, What if we remained focused on the only strategy we know we're called to, which is the gospel? And listen, I get it. 
I get it. It's easy to become overwhelmed by the problems that exist. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the problems that face the world today. It's easy to be, to be angry or to despair at how messed up things in the world can be or in our own lives. I, mean, I get it. I spend five minutes watching cable news or, or Facebook and I'm ready just to sit in the chair, kick up my feet, take some Oreos and a glass of milk, shut my eyes and be done with it all. But listen, outrage and despair and gluttony are not strategies. They're distractions. Jesus comes in Mark 13 and says, we've got work to do. The gospel is our work. And it's the only work in which we can be involved that will last beyond this life. So let's be a people who are on guard for the gospel. A people who, who go out there and, I'm being metaphorical, build amazing Batman displays. God's equipped us for that. He's given us a task. We have one another in the Holy Spirit. We have the truth of the Word. That's enough for us to do our jobs. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for focus. We repent of allowing our hearts and minds to be led astray by distractions. We repent from anger and despair that keep us from being in the game, that keep us from being on guard at our posts. Lord, we ask that you would do the work in our lives that take us further down the road of spiritual vigilance, of being men and women who are focused on the reason you've given us gifts, the reason you've given us each other, the reason you've given us the Holy Spirit. That not only would we be that we would be remade into your image, but but that that being remade into your image would have fruit that's born beyond us. That we would recognize our responsibility that we are blessed to be a blessing. Father, make of us, individually and corporately, people who do not just consume, but we contribute. Make of us men and women whose uh, lives are characterized by the kind of habits that bring you glory and that serve your purposes. We give ourselves anew to that cause, Lord, because we know that in doing so, true contentment, true joy, that lasting peace can be found in being a part of what you've called us to do. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.